Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Swarfcast. Before we start, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love the show, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app or tell somebody about it. It really makes a difference for us and we'd appreciate it. Okay, on with the show. So we hook up to the machine and uh, then we all sit around the conference table and we pull this machine's data up. And uh, so I pull up the machine's data and I can say, all right, well, I can see here that the machines run a couple cycles and uh, you've got a minute and 30 second cycle time. And uh, immediately someone was like, well, that's wrong. It's a minute. You know, and they were thinking that the data coming off the machine was wrong. I said, well, it, it really looks, we can see the whole cycle of the machine. We can see each tool change. It's taken a minute and 30 seconds. And uh, one of the guys gets up from the table and he's like, I'm going to go check it out right now. He goes out on the shop floor. And I kind of keep going on talking about the software and, the, and their shop. And he comes back and he says, I fixed it. It's back down to a minute. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Our guest on today's show is Eric Fogg, co-founder and head of machine connectivity at Machine Metrics. Machine Metrics produces a device that connects directly with machine tool PLCs and controls to track real-time and historical data on equipment. Operators use the data to assess how machines are truly performing, which is often quite different from what they perceive. As a used machine tool dealer specializing in high production equipment, I've encountered plenty of fire-damaged machines. An average fire costs a business $300,000 to $500,000 and six to eight weeks of lost production time. Installed on over 15,000 CNC machines, FireTrace protects shops running oil-based coolants by automatically detecting and suppressing fires within seconds. After FireTrace stops a fire, its system quickly rearms, and you can have your machine back up and running in as little as 45 minutes. For more details, go to www.firetrace.com swarfcast. That's www.firetrace.com slash swarfcast. I'm thrilled to have Eric Fogg co-founder and head of machine connectivity at Machine Metrics. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks for having me on, Noah. Great. So I want to learn what Machine Metrics does and, and get your story as well. In a nutshell, what does Machine Metrics do? Then I want to learn how you got there and just get into lots of interesting things because I know... I know that there's there's a lot of facets here to explore. Yeah. So, yeah, what what is what is machine metrics? Yeah, well, in a nutshell, machine metrics is a machine data connectivity platform. So, what we specialize in is connecting directly to machine controls, to sensors, to the equipment on a factory floor. We take that data with uh, an edge device that we've developed that gathers that data from the shop floor. Um, it encrypts it, does a few cool things right there on the shop floor with it, forwards it up to our cloud service, where then our customers can use that data in whatever other system they want. Or we have a whole bunch of uh, out-of-the-box reporting, dashboards, uh, analytics that we can do. Interesting. Okay. So now, what's your story, Eric? How did you get there? 
And were, were you always interested in machining? Um, not always, although I got interested in machining pretty early on. I was lucky enough to go to a high school that had a career center. And it was my first year. I think my, my sophomore year where I had a free slot where I could put an elective credit in. And I thought, ah, should I do basket weaving or... Uh, or machine shop. They had machine shop. And I thought, ah, that might be kind of interesting because um, Where was my this? dad. What city? Uh, this was in Brattleboro, Vermont. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, my dad used to work in a machine shop. And uh, so maybe if I took machine shop class, it would be a fun thing to talk about with my dad. So I took the class and pretty much day one, I remember they, uh, we made yo-yos on a old LeBlanc engine lathe. And hmm. uh, I was, I was hooked immediately. I just... I've always loved making stuff and so cool to make stuff out of metal and all sorts of different machines and processes and, and uh, just kind of opened up a whole world of imagination. So stayed wor- working a lot and took pretty much every machining class that was available in that school. And um, at nights and on weekends and on my summers, I worked at machine shops in the area. Just a, as an operator? Yeah. I, well, I started off uh, washing parts um, mm-hmm. and packing boxes, and then eventually they moved me to the bandsaw cutting parts, and then they moved me to a, a three-axis vertical mill and learned how to run that. And then at home, kind of at, at nights and on weekends, I started trying to teach myself programming. I taught myself Mastercam, and, wow. and then from there, I started programming the, the verticals and then got into four-axis then got into horizontal milling, and then got into five-axis milling. So by the time I graduated high school or the year after, I was I was programming uh, five-axis milling equipment and uh, working on some some really fun uh, kind of mostly aerospace projects. So you from the beginning you were sort of in the mindset of combining computers and machines. You were interested in both. That's what it seems like. Yeah, I mean it, it was always. It, it had kind of just become the paradigm of manufacturing when I started working there. I, the shop that I worked at, you know, it, it used to be all manual equipment and then they got in a CNC machine and then they kind of just, it, it slowly pushed out all the manual equipment. And by the time I was working there, they were down to, to one guy running the manual equipment. Everything else was CNCs. So, um, you know, when, when I got started in the industry, it really started with, with CNC and, and CAD. And, uh, you know, I consider myself a, a pretty decent machine programmer and, you know, could, can run a five axis milling machine. But if you put me in front of a, in front of a bridge port or a lathe, you know, I can make you a yo-yo. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> well, so, you know, it makes me skip ahead for a second yeah. with your products, the machine metrics, can it track data from non CNC machines? From cam operated yeah. machines, or yeah, I mean, it's it's generally the newer the machine is, the more data we can get off of it. The older the machine is, uh, the more you either have to add sensors to the machine to get the data you're looking for, or come up with some other creative way uh, to figure out what's going on. But uh, the oldest machine we have connected to our system is a, a 1925 punch press. Wow! And yeah, we just installed a few sensors, a, a tonnage sensor a couple of relays to understand when the press is, is in its uh, kind of push um, operation when someone's hit the foot pedal. And uh, yeah, it's um, you know pre- pretty much anything. We always say is, as long as it moves or has electrons flowing through it, we can probably get some 
useful data off of it. At least understanding if it's running or not, how many parts it's made, that yeah. sort of thing. Well, did this shop also have a lot of really high tech machines as well, or were they mostly more manual machines? Because I, I mean, it seems to me like somebody that was running all old machines from you know 1940s and uh, earlier. If all their machines were like that, they might not be into uh, being tech savvy, etc. Yeah, it's been a, a fascinating learning experience for me. I mean, this this particular shop did have a lot of newer machines. They're generally a fabrication shop, so you know, pressing, stamping, um, turret presses, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But as we start working with companies that OEM their own stuff, companies that make complex assemblies of uh, of products, it's fascinating to see how many are adapted really old machines. So oftentimes it'll be a machine from the 50s or the 60s that you know it, it was built then to make this particular part. And there's really no companies around anymore that that make a machine that makes you know. Um, something very simple, or at, at least in North America, you know, maybe in in Asia, or they're or they're crap, or they're crap, yeah. And and these machines are, you know, they're they're solid, like Cincinnati steel grinders. And, like we had a guy who makes exactly yeah. who does Cincinnati centerless grinders, and like most of the ones that are made now, the few that are are crap. They're just yeah, they don't have the same casting, or they're made in some Asian country and not that machines from Asian countries are bad, but like from the way he described it, it was, it was, uh, it wasn't very good. Um, okay. So back to you. So you learned how to program, you worked in machine shops and then, um, you went to school. What did you major in, in college? (laughs) Uh, theology was my, um, yeah, that was my college major. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So were you just kind of like, all right, that that stuff was really cool. That was fun. And now I want to just, you know, expand my mind in another way. Or were you planning on sort of combining something that you would learn from there? What was yeah. what, what was the motivation behind it? I mean, I took film and history in college. So, you know, and, and I use that a little bit today, but... Um, you know, so what, what was the thought pattern? Yeah, I guess sometimes you just need something a little different. You know, I, I wanted to, to try something new and expand my horizons. But my interest was always with business. And um, my, my thought behind uh, getting an education in theology was that I wanted to expand into corporate ethics and mm-hmm. uh, kind of use the, the teachings of the religions of the world to create guidelines and, and help companies um, you know, find a better ethical path, which is a, a very idealistic uh, teenage thing to think. But um, but you it was, it was you were religious or you weren't religious? Um, in my own way, yeah. But but were you into organized religion before that? Yeah, I mean, I I grew up. You know, my my family went to church every uh, every Sunday, so I certainly was was exposed to the environment. And you know, going to a Catholic university was. Not crazy culture shock for me. Oh, where'd you go? Uh, St. Bonaventure University. Okay, so... Most people don't know about it, but it's uh, it's in upstate New York, kind of in the middle of nowhere. So then where did the the, the ethics go to? Um, where, where did that lead? Or did you 
kind of go off on another path after. Yeah, I, I kind of went off on another path. It led to some fun times and some interesting thoughts, but eventually wound up back home and working back in a machine shop. From from there, decided that I wanted to to branch out on my own and and start my own shop. Um, so that was kind of the, the start of that journey. So what was your shop? What did you guys make? Um, so I wanted to start a shop that specialized in prototyping and engineering of green technology products because I was really interested in the kind of green technology boom that was happening at the time. How old are you? Uh, how old was I at the time? How old were you? How old are you? Yeah, I don't know. I was probably late 20s. I'm 35 now. Okay. So yeah, mid-20s uh, when I started the shop, probably 24, 25 and uh, yeah, just really fascinated with with working with companies that we did a lot of unique solar panel mounting solutions. There were a lot of startups trying to come up with a, a better way to put solar panels on your roof. Um, there were a lot of biofuels startups, uh, especially in Western Massachusetts for some reason. Companies um, trying to come up with new ways to build uh, ethanol reactors. You know, taking uh, like biodiesel, making a biodiesel out of old vegetable oils and things like that. So there was a lot of work to, to machine parts for all of these um, inventions that these startups are coming up with. So you thought it was an interesting niche, something that there was demand for, something that maybe you could believe in, would give you purpose, yeah, and that would just be pretty, pretty cutting edge and interesting. Is that, was that what you were thinking? Yeah. Yeah. It was something that was a lot of fun and, um, I was introduced through kind of some other, uh, you know, business acquaintances and projects I was doing into that um, group of people in in my area anyway. So I already knew who to who to talk to and and ask for work. And then, um, so you did that a few years, and um, and then what led you to where you are? Yeah, so we made a lot of uh, of green technology products for a while, but then the recession set in and. Uh, most of those green tech startups uh, died in the recession. Mm -hmm. And I find myself doing a lot more job shop stuff, aerospace jobs and things like that. And uh, especially given that it was the recession, the margins weren't good and it was tough work. Um, what kind of machines so, were you using? Uh, I had a couple of Haas vertical mills okay. um, and uh, you know some other interesting uh, Taiwanese CNC mills that were, were very inexpensive that I was trying to repurpose for specialty jobs, but that's a, a different story, I guess. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so we, um, the recession was a bit hard and, and, uh, closed the shop, liquidated everything and started getting into, uh, Six Sigma consulting, uh, lean consulting mm -hmm. with mostly job shops in the area. And even though the recession was on, there's also a war on. So there's a fair amount of, uh, <laughs> of defense work still going. So a lot of the shops, um, in my region were, were quite busy actually at the time, um, with, with military related orders. So they were able to hire me and, uh, you know, go through their shop and, and try and find areas for improvement. And that's, that's kind of where the, the seed for machine metrics was planted because, uh, I would be working on a very specific process in the shop, but I found questions like what's the utilization of this machine? How often is this machine running? Uh, over the course of a shift, a day, a week, a month. Um, will you make your orders this week? Do you need to be buying that new machine? Really kind of basic business questions like that would go largely unanswered. Or I realized that a lot of these shops were were making these decisions based on a gut feeling. Yeah, yeah. And the successful shops had a better gut. 
Do you like being more on the outside advising or on the inside in the trenches cutting metal? Um, I'm more of a trenches guy myself. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I, I like uh, yeah, diving into new projects and yeah, I'd, I'd rather be uh, trying to figure out how to machine a difficult part and um, you know build a, a cell around it or something like that. Um, then why aren't you doing that? Um, well, because I, I, um, really love, uh, machine shops. I kind of consider myself a manufacturing patriot and with, with my job now, uh, with our, our software startup, I get to go into hundreds of these shops and, uh, you know, get, get my hands dirty on all of their processes. So mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of the best of both worlds. Awesome. Okay. So now give me the origins of machine metrics and, uh, Let's go into a little more depth. How did you get the idea? Uh, who are the co-founders? Yeah, so um, knowing that so many of these shops are, are managing on a gut feeling, I, I thought, well, there's got to be a better way, right? And there's um, a lot of data on these machines. Having programmed the machines, I knew that that the data was on those controls and that maybe a good place to get started was to pull the data off the controls and try and build some some dashboards and reports and, and analytics to help make those decisions. So started doing some experiments with that with some of my existing uh, consulting customers, but quickly realized that A, I think I had a business here and B, I needed some help because I'm a being an in the trenches machine tool nerd, you know, starting a new company is might not be uh, the, the best idea for me. So had uh, had met previously and had heard about a, a guy in my area who in the New New England Boston area yeah in the, the Western Massachusetts area actually which is a you know kind of small pond um, so you, you know everybody I guess uh, but he had he had successfully sold his previous startup that he bootstrapped and uh, had met him and admired him greatly and and knew that he had a background um, his background is in mechanical engineering what's his name uh, Bill Byther okay and. Uh, so yeah, he used to work in aerospace, you know, designing F thirty five parts and things like that with his mechanical engineering degree, and and he followed through those processes through manufacturing. So he already knew a lot about the industry, and uh, so I reached out to him and shared my ideas with him, and uh, that was a little over five years ago. Now we started the company, we formed Machine Metrics, um, we pulled in another co founder, Jacob Lozier, who's our CTO, and he's. Uh, He's kind of the software and code guru. And uh, yeah, the, re- the rest is history. We're past 60 people now, 400 wow. customers, thousands of machines connected to the system. So it's a long journey. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graph Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. 
P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. Okay, so give me a summary of all of the different things that you track on the machines, because that's basically what you guys do. You track it, and then you kind of put it into a system and organize it for people so they understand what's going on, correct? Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And there's, there's a lot of different use cases and a lot of different benefits that customers can get from different pieces of data. So it, it can vary wildly. Um, the most basic is just tracking utilization. So getting back to that, that original concept of understanding how much machines are running uh, versus what people think they're running at. So you know, one, one story that we always tell is since we, we can see the utilization data, since we're a cloud-based product, we know the utilization of all of our customers. So we, we kind of have like these anonymized numbers of, of utilization across every machine we're connected to. Hmm. And uh, the average perceived utilization, when we ask customers before we start with them, what do you think the utilization of your equipment is? Uh-huh. Is that just under 80%, it's usually high 70s, um, is where people think they are. I was going to say that that wouldn't be bad. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's world class, it turns out. Um, the, the average actual is in the high 20s, low 30s. Whoa. So that's that yeah. 20% of what they could be utilizing their machines. Yeah. No, yep. but, but so, does that mean, does that mean, could that be accounted for like they're only running at one shift or? or? Uh, that's during active shifts. That's so, during active shifts. So it's not, yep. it's not just like, oh, we're only running one shift and that's why we're, wow. Yeah. 20, yeah, 20 I mean, to 30%. Yeah, is yeah, it's usually because, high 20s. And why is that? Because the people don't know what they're doing? The machines aren't maintained? Uh, what? It, it can it can be a lot of reasons. I mean, I think some is that there there isn't an understanding of what's world-class, right? Like if if your process is you, uh, you get an order for one part, it's a complex part, you have to code it, set it up, make it, <laughs> um, check it, and that's all that's happening, maybe 15% utilization is world-class uh, for that type of work. For like, right? Then you're talking about low-volume work. Yeah, yeah. If you're just making onesie-twosie parts, uh, you're a job shop and you make one or two parts and move on to the next job. 15% is is not bad. Is not bad, exactly. Why? And that's that's the thing is that... I'm puzzled. These numbers can be really surprising for people. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating how little thought there is around where utilization should be in, in different market verticals. But, um, okay. Well, what about, what about like, uh, our, a lot of our listeners, you know, we, we have a whole mixed bag. Some people are doing low volume, but many people are making, you know, 10,000, 50,000 millions of parts. Are they often even less efficient? And it's really easy to get lost in, I think it would be even harder to track yeah. or even harder to be up to your full potential when you're doing I mean, those that. those shops definitely have much higher utilization rates. So we do have some customers that, yeah, they make parts by the millions and their utilization rates can be in the 90s. But generally, those those shops also have much thinner margins. So the difference between going from 90 to 93% utilization can can make a really big difference to a bottom line. Oh, so so the people with the high volumes are often better at getting their machines utilized than the people with the onesies and twosies. But across the board, almost everybody is shocked at what theirs actually is. 
that's that's kind of the one commonality. If if you think you're 90 and you're 80, that's shocking. If you think you're 50 and you're 15, um, that's shocking. And that's uh, that's oftentimes the news that that we're delivering to our customers very early on is uh, is giving that baseline utilization number. Okay, so now why? What 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 is what is the main culprit? Um, there's there's a lot of um, top top five things. Yeah, I mean, and it it varies almost by every shop. It's another thing that makes this job interesting, right? Is as we start working with each company, it's like, oh, that's what's holding you back. But there's a lot of stories that I love to tell around this. One is just around tool changes. So we had we had one customer that um, they have a a couple cells that run a high volume. So they just these cells were set up to make this part. They make them by the thousands every week. What machine? It's a uh, uh, like a robo drill style uh, drill tap centers um, okay. fed with robots. And um, okay, they uh, they put in a, a cheap quarter inch drill um, because you know there's there's one little hole in the part that's a quarter inch and it's not that important. And uh, so yeah, just just buy a cheap drill bit. Um, you know, throw it in there. And how long does it take to change a quarter inch drill bit? Right, five minutes. Right, you just you touch it off. You put a new one in. Press the green button, you're good to go. Uh, but what we found mm-hmm. when we hooked machine metrics up to the system was, yeah, sometimes it does take five minutes to swap out that quarter-inch drill bit. But sometimes when the operator is on their way to the tool crib to grab a replacement, you know, someone says, hey, Eric, hey, can you come over here and help me out with this problem? Yeah. So then you're helping somebody else out with a problem. Machine sitting idle. You know, Then it's lunchtime. Machine sitting idle. Um, so even though the customer perceived that Every tool change should be taken five, 10 minutes. The average was over 40 minutes to change that tool. So that's, you know, that's something that we can track. Really? So, so in your opinion, then maybe either you could get a better tool or the process would be changed. So you weren't trying to multitask. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what happened, right? The, the owner of that company looked at that number and he said, why are we, you know, why are we cheaping out on this cheap uh, you know, high-speed steel drill bit. If we're losing 40 minutes uh, on average, several times a day, go out and buy the most expensive <laughs> drill you can find for this job. And they did. They, you know, they went out and bought a. Was that was that the best answer, or was it really the process that was? The well, main I, I guess there's a lot of ways you can attack it, um, and that's you know that's up to our customers. They can attack it, however, um, you know, from from easiest to hardest. So yeah, I mean, I think there's. Well, what was the bigger in that case, for instance? What was the bigger problem? Was it was it just the system and the people, or was it the tool? That yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think it's both, right? It's um, the system and the people, but that's a hard problem to tackle, right? Because there's right, those right. those forty minute that forty minute average. There could be a hundred different things, you know. Say you changed a hundred tools, and the average was forty minutes each time. There could be a hundred different things um, that that operator came across that that delayed him or her um, to get that tool changed done expeditiously. So in this case, the easiest solution is just buy a tool that's going to last way longer. Right. And so they did. They bought a tool that lasted 10 times longer. So instead of changing this drill bit you know, three, four times a day, they were changing it a couple times a week. Um, so even if it's still... So your company, you find the data and then is part of your service to actually give them a prescription what to do or is it kind of like self-explanatory are you providing two different services like hardware and insight or or how's it work we don't do a lot uh with the insight we do have a customer success department that works with each 
customer in perpetuity and helps them go over their data and, and try and find the useful data. But we found that you put this data in front of the customers, customers are generally hungry for it, and they find the valuable decisions to make very quickly. Yeah. Um, and we're the ones that are learning. We're watching how they're using our data, and we're always amazed and surprised at, at what uses people come up with um, and the problems that they solve. Right. Well, I mean, buy a better tool. Like, that's pretty simple. Are the suppliers, like, for instance, the tooling people, are they going to you and wanting data from you so they can go to their customer and say, here's the ROI? Exactly. Well, and customers are doing that themselves. So it can happen from either angle. A, A tooling company can come to you and say, hey, I'll install this system on your machine. Then I'll put my product in the machine and prove to you. Uh, what the value is. But the other direction happens very often too, where our customers have a salesperson come in and they say, hey, buy this tool, it'll be 10% better. And our customers now mm-hmm. are able to say, okay, give us one, let's go out and throw it on the machine right now. Yeah, And we'll look at the machine metrics data and be able to tell you if it's 10% better or not. If it is 10% better, you got yourself an order. That's so cool. So give me another example. Like that's a seems like a very straightforward one. Give me another. Give me another example of a, a metric you guys would do. Yeah. And, and yeah. Happens. I mean, I think uh, you know, I can I can give you a lot overall. I think you know what what we've learned is that the biggest culprits on a shop floor it's it's more death by a thousand cuts, right? There's there may be some big issues on your shop floor that uh, that your team is already spending a ton of time working on, right? You don't need a software company to come in and tell you that you're losing 40 hours a week because of this big issue, because you probably already know. But generally, those big problems that you already know about are really difficult to solve. um, And you're really banging your heads against the wall trying to solve those. Meanwhile, there's a thousand little five and 10 minute things that are happening all over your shop that you're not seeing. And that's what we bring to the surface. And what we've found is even though there's so many of them, they're often very easy to solve. So another one that I find really fascinating, and this is not something that I was taught uh, when I got my lean, uh, you know, Six Sigma certification, things like that, is cycle creep. Um, Cycle creep is something that is an epidemic, especially in the CNC industry. Cycle creep. Yeah. And basically what that is, I mean, it's a coin that we kind of termed, but maybe it's not original to us. Um, But uh, say you, you program a job. You set it up on your machine, and it takes a minute to make that part. Okay. Over time, uh, if you keep running that job, people make little tweaks. People change a tool, they change a feed rate, they'll do this, they'll do that. Um, and over time, okay. that cycle time changes. But what's in your books, what's in your ERP system, what you're billing the customer for is a minute apart. But six months, a year into manufacturing that part, it's actually fairly rare that the cycle time is what you set it to. And wait, is it usually improved or... Not. It's usually getting worse. It's almost always getting worse. Really? Do some people expect it that it's getting better? I think people would think, oh, well, I keep tweaking it and fine tuning it. And Yeah. Um, and I think there probably are some cases where it gets better. But a majority of the time, at least that we see it, it's getting worse. Usually if it's better, it's expected, right? It's like, hey, I, I bought that that new tool that's 10% faster. So I'm going to lower my, my 60 seconds to 50 seconds. And you can bet that that's going in your accounting system, right? 
Um, but are these is it because people are sort of using a band aid? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of it I still don't know. One example is <laughs> uh, I was in a I was in a shop. Part of our sales process is we'll hook up to a machine. Um, right when we're there, it usually takes us a couple minutes, depending on the machine, and uh, connecting to a Swiss machine for a medical company that OEMs their own parts. And uh, so then, kind of like you're you're coming in and you're you're giving it a physical. Yeah, exactly. So we hook up to the machine, <laughs> and uh, then we all sit around the conference table and we pull this machine's data up. And uh, so I pull up the machine's data, and I can say, all right, well, I can see here that the machines run a couple cycles, and uh, you've got a minute and thirty second cycle time. And uh, immediately someone was like, well, that's wrong. It's a minute. You know, and they were thinking that the data coming off the machine was wrong. I said, well, it, it really looks, we can see the whole cycle of the machine. We can see each tool change. It's taken a minute and 30 seconds. And uh, one of the guys wow. gets up from the table and he's like, I'm going to go check it out right now. He goes out on the shop floor. And I kind of keep going on talking about the software and, the, and their shop. And he comes back and he says, I fixed it. It's back down to a minute. And, uh, and the, the general manager of the site was like, you're kidding. Like, what did you do? He said, one of the, one of the tools was set to run a second time. It was basically like a boring bar running a spring cut. So at some point in the process, you know, an internal diameter was a, a little undersized. So an operator or somebody just ran that tool a second time, just kind of tacked it mm. on, um, and, and ran it a second time and the parts were coming out to size if you just ran that same tool a second time instead of tweaking the offsets of that tool and, and doing the right thing to, to get it cutting right. And the guy just went out and then in a couple minutes was able to reprogram it. He took off that second second run of the tool. He adjusted the offsets, got the machine making good parts again. So he and, and these are real numbers. It was around a minute and 30 seconds and he brought it down to a minute. Wow. So that's a 50% increase. A Swiss, right. And this is probably an expensive part. I mean, a, a fairly expensive part. But the crazy thing is that um, that machine had been running that part for years. So sitting around the table with these guys, they were like, we honestly don't know when this problem happened. It could have been running this way for a year or more. Um, were there we a few know. machines? Were there a few machines running the same part? Uh, or that I don't was running so. its own? Yeah, okay. I think yeah they they kind of had machines set up running their own um, unique part numbers. So um, so yeah, just just a great example of of cycle creep. Um, and for them, they got a fifty percent productivity boost. But it's fascinating wow. because you know you walk around the shop floor and all the pat lights, all the sack lights are green, right? So you just assume well machines running, the light is green, we're good. But in this case, no, the light might as well have been red half the time. But that's that's a simple transparency that you don't see when you're just looking at is the machine running or not. And that is a case of just they could improve on people and they can improve on people to watch their people, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's it's also so many of these cases. We I mean, we never really see many instances where where somebody is being malicious. You know, it's, it's generally people are trying to do the right thing. It's just sometimes people don't know how, what the right way to program that machine is. Or my guess is in that case, somebody ran that tool a second time because they just needed to set it up quick that way. And they were planning to come back later or talk with their supervisor about it the next day and conversation never happened. And then it was forgotten. So it, it sounds like an extreme example. Um, and I thought it was an extreme example when it happened, but it, uh, it turns out that it, it happens a lot. One other really quick example that I'll give is we have another customer that has um, about 20 or more 400 millimeter horizontal milling machines. 
um, and they're all in a row, really nice, beautiful, all the same machine, same model, same make. And um, the OEM of those machines had programmed them originally to um, come on site turnkey. They're all making the same part, um, or they're all making the same family of parts. So, but they bought these machines over the course of 10 years. So gradually one at a time, these machines come in, they're programmed, set up to run the job, get added to the line and, uh, and put into production, but all making the same part, the expected cycle time was 40 minutes, um, Mm -hmm. something like that, 42 minutes, something like that for a whole pallet to be completed and, and swapped out. Um, of the 20 or so machines that we were connected to, when we did this study, no two had the same cycle time. And the delta hmm. between no two had out of four had the same cycle time. No two out of twenty had the same cycle time, and they were all making the same part. Some of them were only a few seconds apart from each other. Okay, but the delta between the fastest machine and the slowest machine was fifteen minutes. But why didn't the company already see this? Green lights, right? That's what they were checking for. Uh, all the machines were loaded, lights were green, chips coming out the back end of the machine into the chip bin. Yeah. Everything looks good. So yeah, we, we hooked up to this, these machines and within a week, they had all the machines tweaked into within a couple seconds of each other cycle time, which um, was a, a tremendous savings for that company and a really simple, simple ROI. You know, it took, it took less than a week to, to understand it, to reprogram it and do it. That's amazing. I mean, this must be a, a once you, you know, give your spiel to people, I'd think this would be a, a pretty easy sell. Yeah, I, I do think it's it, in a lot of ways it's an easy sell. Uh, the hardest part is is what we were talking about a little earlier, which is that oftentimes we're delivering bad news. Yeah, and it doesn't have oh, to. Yeah. be Yeah, it's news, it's right? uncomfortable too because that means that sure buying another tool, no problem. Buying even even buying another machine, no problem. But just changing, you know, an ERP system or a CRM or you know a way of having people people's schedules or whatever like it's annoying and then i'm sure it's just tough to for people to to hear so is that is that part of your job or the people's job of your company to like be empathetic and talk to people in a way that they're able to deal with this stuff and and maybe I suppose you also try to come up with certain data to make people feel good about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's certainly our job to, to walk customers through the data that they're seeing and share the change management uh, lessons that we've learned with other customers. So that's, that's kind of the, the genius of the, the SaaS model and a um, customer success manager being assigned to accounts is that you get a little bit of uh, like the wisdom of the crowd, right? So we, we are, are really in touch with every customer that we continuously work with every day. Um, and we, we learn the best practices from them and pass those yeah. best practices on to new customers. That makes sense. So because every, everything that we've thought we knew how it was done, um, it, it turns out it's all wrong, right? When, when you're actually in a shop um, and so many shops are different by vertical, by the type of work they're doing, the game completely changes. But the, the thing that is consistent is having a, a culture around change in your shop. And that's that's often a really hard thing. Um, oh, it's so uncomfortable. Business. Change is, sucks. Yeah, yeah. And it's in a lot of ways, um, you know, it's not in human nature. Most people are stressed by by moving their homes, right? It's to move into a new place. Even if 
by the books, everything about it is great. It's a bigger place. It's a better location, whatever, but it's really stressful to do something new and uncomfortable and, and a kind of a step away from that, Mm -hmm. that home like feeling of the way you had been doing things. But if it is actually a better, a better world where you're moving, it becomes easy quickly. So I think that's a lot of our job is to show that better world as quick as we can to get people comfortable with the changes. So you would, you would say that one of the signs of a business that's either successful or on the ball is them being able or embracing change. Absolutely. I suppose I'm biased, but, uh, I mean, we, we, we have customers that excel with our product and growth. Um, exactly. Yeah. And we have yeah. customers that excel with our product and we have customers that struggle with it and to cast wide strokes, the customers that excel are the ones that have the best culture around change. And the ones that struggle are the ones that, that struggle with that the most. From today's machining world, this is a Swarfcast production. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to see extended video interviews and join our mailing list. I'm Noah Graff. Our audio engineer is Bill Steffi. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information on todaysmachiningworld.com.